following audio is from Covenant Life Fellowship. And for, for more information about our church and to stay up to date on all sermons, events, and news, please visit our website at www.clfroseburg.com. All right, let's open our Bibles, Genesis chapter 3. Um, hey, and as Dave mentioned earlier, uh, we just, as elders, just want to say thank you to so many that served our church really well last week. I mean, it's, it's freeing to allow us to get away for a weekend uh, knowing that the church is taken care of. Uh, Luis did a fantastic job preaching the Word of God. Perry, as, as normal, led us in worship. And then so many other things happening uh, behind the scenes that just made, made it really easy for us to go. Um, and so, yeah, we're just we're thankful. And so we just want to say uh, thank you to all of you guys who helped us out. And, and obviously, thanks to the church. You guys are so easy to serve. And we just want to say thanks for that. All right, this morning, we're going to start an Advent series. Now, uh, let me say this. We, we've been a church for 18 years, and we have never celebrated Advent. We celebrated the coming of Christ and the birth of Christ, but never done the traditional Sundays of Advent. So we're going to do that this year, right? Um, and so for those of you who are new to church or you have no idea what Advent is, the word Advent comes from the Latin word that means coming. And the Advent season of the year is a time of anticipation and expectation as we draw closer to Christmas Day and celebrate the birth of Jesus. Um, Advent lasts four Sundays. Um, and every Sunday has a particular theme that goes with it. We're going to like we normally do here, we're going to take an extra Sunday on Advent, though. The last Sunday of the year, we're going to add an, a, a sermon called Advent to All the World that doesn't go in with the other four Sundays. But each Sunday has a particular theme to it that points to our longing for Christ and the fulfillment that Christ brings to us. So today, we're going to talk about hope. Next Sunday is peace. The following Sunday is joy. The last Sunday is love. And that's how we're going to do it. Now, uh, Advent was first heard about in church history in the 300s. It was a time of prayer and fasting as new, this, this new thing called Christians begin to celebrate and look ahead to the, come, the second coming of Jesus. Later, it was, it was introduced to cover the entire month of December as a way of leading up to Christmas Day for the church to meditate on the first coming of Jesus and look ahead to the second coming of Jesus. Now, you're going to notice on my right, there's some candles with a wreath uh, there's called an Advent wreath, Advent ca- uh, candles, and this this is based on a church tradition that started in the 1800s in Germany. A German minister created an Advent wreath out of an evergreen plant as a symbol to show young children about the eternal life in the middle of dead days in in winter. And he put 24 candles on the wreath, and every day beginning J- December 1, he'd light a new candle, and the picture was that Jesus is the light of the world who's come to light up the darkness. And you can obviously imagine, as more, more candles get lit, it got brighter as it went along. Now, our Advent wreath has three candles on it. You're going to notice there's three purple ones, there's one pink one, and there's one white candles on it. So there's four, five total candles, sorry, five candles. Purple for the royalty and sovereignty of Jesus. Pink representing joy and celebration. White symbolizing the purity and victory of Christ over darkness. And every Sunday as we go along, we're going to light a new candle. So today we obviously have one lit. It's going to go down pretty fast, and we'll replace it with a new one soon. And then when we get to Christmas Eve, we're going to light that white one in the middle, um, just symbolizing Christ being the victorious one over sin and death. Now to go along with our Advent series, something that we have for you 
and I can, I can already tell you that they, the supply is going down rapidly, is we would encourage you to get an Advent devotional book for your family or for yourself. Um, beginning on December 1 is kind of when Advent begins, and every, every book has a reading that goes with it. So let me just highlight a few that are over in the bookstore. <clears throat> the first one that we're, we're highlighting that we bought 30 copies of, I think we're down to six now. Um, you can leave during service and get one if you need to. Uh, there's no fighting here like there is on Black Friday, okay? So, uh, but the one we're hi- highlighting here is, is a book by Sinclair Ferguson. If you, if you can ever get your hands on anything by Sinclair Ferguson, you should. Um, you should listen to him preach so you can hear, when you read his books, the Scottish accent that he brings to the table. It's fantastic. And, and the book is called Love Came Down at Christmas. Um, that one is really good for, for if you've got older kids, like teenage type of kids, you know, preteens, as well as it's great for adults. Our favorite book for young kids uh, that we ran out of this morning already is a book called Jotham's Journey. It is a fantastic story that talks about a Jewish boy navigating through Christmas season, the coming of Christ in first century Jerusalem. Now, the cool thing about Jotham's Journey is it has other stories that are linked to other parts of the, of the time of the year. Like there's another story called Tabitha's Travels, I think it is, right? In, in Easter, and Tabitha is in her role in Easter, and Jotham's going through, this, and they meet up at some point in their stories. So it's, it's four different books that really latch together, but Jotham's Journey is a great one for young kids if you want to have a story. And there's a few other ones over there that we'd love, to get, we'd love for you to get your hands on. The key to this, though, is here's our goal as a church. We really want to slow down as we come to church on Sundays during this crazy time of the year and meditate on Christ, right? And we want you to do the same at home. So when you take a book from us or you buy an Advent book, the goal is that you're sitting down with your kids at some point in the season and you're just you're, you're discipling them in the faith about what this whole Advent season is really about. We want each day to be something that just creates in us a longing and an anticipation for our King Jesus. All right. So today we're going to start with hope. So let's stand together. We're going to read one verse in the Bible. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. <clears throat> Genesis 3:15 This is the reading of God's word. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that as we enter this this season of Christmas that we are freshly reminded of the greatest miracle ever given to us, that God became man. And I pray that as we enter into this season, that you would help our hearts and our souls to slow down and to once again marvel at the work of our great King Jesus. So Father, help us today. Open our eyes to the truths that you've revealed in your word and help us to see that Jesus is indeed the hope for all the world. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Now, what we're going to do today, just so you can get your your writing utensils prepared, is we're about to do an overview of the entire Old Testament and get ourselves to the birth of Jesus. Okay? Everybody laughs, right? You will not be here all day, I promise, right? Uh, I've finished early in the first service. I was pretty proud of that. I probably won't finish early in the second, but we're going to give it a shot. So let's, 
Let's take a look at the first point in your outline, which is hope in the Old Testament. Now, if you know your Bibles very well, you probably might have wondered, why would Pastor Dave start a sermon on hope in the middle of the darkest chapter in the Bible for humans? If you don't know your Bible very well or you're new to the Bible, then you'll know that Genesis chapter 3 is the chapter where we read about the fall of humanity into sin and rebellion against God. It's in this chapter that we read that, that Eve was deceived by Satan to eat the fruit of the forbidden tree. It was that tree that God had told Adam not to eat of its fruit. Yet here in Genesis chapter 3, Eve ate the fruit, and Adam, who was with her, also ate of the fruit, knowing, Adam knowing what, exactly what he was doing. At that moment, because Adam was our first earthly father, he fell into sin against God, and we fell with him into sin against God. It is, in Genesis chapter 3, the most tragic moment in the Bible for humans. It's at this point in human history that disease came into the world. Weeds came into the world. Relational conflict came into the world. Matter of fact, if you you look at your Bible and you start in Genesis 3 and you just do one chapter over to Genesis chapter 4, you get an opportunity to to see the very first family portrait of Adam and Eve's family. And they got Adam and Eve, their sons Cain and Abel, and the very first thing you notice about their family is their son, Cain, rises up and kills his brother Abel. Not a very good family portrait if you want to put up above your you know, sofa in your living room, right? It, it reveals that sin entered the world and immediately sin enters the world and conflict comes with it. So war came with sin and death came to us all because in Adam we all sinned. So therefore, when you look around your world today, and this is something we have to really get our minds wrapped around we look around our world and we see sickness. You know, we see cancer. We see, you know, another variant of COVID. You've got blood disease, etc. You name the sickness. You've got conflict with individuals in conflict, families in conflict with one another, nations at war with one another. When you see, you go out to your yard and your garden and you're picking thorns and thistles every, seems like every day of your life. In the summer, when we have uncontrollable wildfires and you see death all around you, what you should be referencing is Genesis chapter 3. Because we all live in a Genesis chapter 3 world. It is dark. It is disappointing. It's hard. There's a lot of conflict everywhere. and We all kind of wonder, can't we all just get along in this thing? And what is the big deal? Yet in the middle of this dark chapter of Genesis chapter 3, we also get the greatest reason for hope in the Bible. Verse 15. It's in this verse that God promised to send a champion who would reverse the curse of sin. It's in this verse that God is speaking to the devil, our arch enemy, and he tells him very clearly that there will be conflict between the devil and the offspring of the woman, mankind. From her offspring, a particular person would come who would crush the devil's head, meaning His days are numbered, and the devil would bruise his heel. It's a sure picture that the devil is a a temporal figure, if you will, that is going to be destroyed by the power of God. And there would be a person born of a woman who would defeat the devil and reverse the curse that his deception brought into the world. Now what's interesting, if you... To help you study your Bibles a little more, this is going to be one of those sermons that will help you read your Bibles a little differently. From Genesis 3.15 on, from the rest of the Bible, the Bible begins to build its storyline. 
of this idea called the blessed hope that is to come. And we're going to see that throughout the entire Old Testament. Now, one thing that you need to notice when you read Genesis 3.15 is notice how big this plan is. It's for all of mankind. Notice, notice it's about God reversing the curse, doing the very thing. Satan deceives Eve, sin enters the world. All this stuff happens, and a champion's going to come in and destroy the deceiver. And notice how big this is. It's for everybody. But also notice as we go through this how God progressively reveals more specifics to us from his word about where this individual, this champion of Genesis 3.15, will finally come from. Right? So in Genesis 3.15, we recognize clearly it's a man. It's an offspring of the woman. But in Genesis chapter 6, man has digressed so far to the point of God needing to intervene. Man has sinned so terribly that the Lord decided in his righteous judgment to send a a flood to destroy man, except for a man named Noah and his family. And perhaps one of the most famous stories found in the Bible, Noah, in, in obedience to God, built an ark that saved him and his family from the wrath of God. But soon after the waters receded, and God promised Noah and his family and commanded them to go multiply and be fruitful in the earth and fill it, at Noah's family, just like Adam, sinned against God. And again, in in the middle of a tragic moment of human history, God then blesses two of Noah's sons, Shem and Ham, I mean, Sim and Japheth, for their obedience, and he cursed the other son, Ham, for his disobedience. Now notice what God said to them in chapter 9, verses 26 through 27. God promised that Japheth would receive land while Shem was blessed because of his relational connection with God. But Ham's family line was, was cursed to slavery. What's intriguing is Shem's close, or Shem's close relationship with God revealed something powerful about him. Not only would the champion of Genesis 3 come from a woman, but it would come from the line of Shem which is known as, now we know of them as, those of Middle Eastern descent. We'd call them Semites. As the Bible moves forward, we begin to get more specific. So it's not just a man. It's a man of Middle Eastern descent. As the Bible moves forward, we get more specifics. After Noah and his family multiplied, years had gone by, man once again sinned against God. But because God promised not to destroy the earth with a flood again because he gave us the rainbow... God decided to to confuse our languages and scatter us all over the globe so we could not do certain things. In Genesis chapter 12, God called a man named Abram, the son of an idol worshiper, a Semite, a man of Middle Eastern descent, and promised that out of his family, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. And perhaps the clearest picture that the Genesis 3 champion would come out of Abraham's line through his son Isaac God told him in Genesis chapter 17, verse 19, I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. And in Genesis 22, 18, he told him, and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you've obeyed my voice. Now, Abraham's family became known as the nation of Israel. So we've got a little bit more specifics. A man, Middle Eastern descent of the the nation of Israel, of Abraham's family. But Isaac, Abraham's son, is in the story as well. He had, he had two sons, Jacob and Esau, and in God's providence, Jacob had 12 sons of his own. As Jacob was closing in on death, he prophetically declared that one of his sons, Judah, 
would have a king's scepter in his hand, and that scepter would never depart from him in Genesis chapter 49. So now we got more specifics. The Genesis 3 champion was now becoming even more clear. A Middle Eastern man, a descendant of Abraham, who was born of Judah's kingly line. And then over a thousand years later, Israel's most famous king, David, rose to the throne. He was a man after God's own heart and desirous to do all that God had told him to do. And in perhaps the most anticipated and hope-filled promise that the Jewish people still to this day are waiting on in Jerusalem at King David's uh, tomb, God promised that David would have a son sitting on his throne forever. And again, notice the progression. The Genesis 3 champion would be a man born of Middle Eastern descent, of Abraham's family line, Israel. He would be of the tribe of Judah, and he would be of the kingly line of David. Now, it's with that backdrop, if you know that backdrop, or you hear that backdrop, and you see this promise after promise after promise, more specifics after more specifics, you then begin to look at the Old Testament with radically different eyeballs. Because that hope of that champion to come is the hope of Israel. What's intriguing, when you read the Old Testament and you see this hope drawing out, it's not just promises that were given. We also begin to see stories differently. There is a hope in this Old Testament. A champion would come who would reverse the curse. And, and it's not just giving us these promises, but it's giving us a glimpse in these stories of what this champion would do and what he would even look like. So here's some examples. You've got Noah's Ark, a very famous story. It's not just a story of a big boat. It's a story of God choosing one man to save his chosen people from the wrath of God. You've got Abraham offering his son Isaac on the altar, yet Abraham believing and knowing that this promised son, Isaac, was the son of promise, who would, the line of the champion would come, that God, if Isaac, if Isaac were to die, God would raise the dead because God had promised. You've got the story of the young shepherd boy, David, killing the, Goliath, killing the giant Goliath with one shot from his sling. Someone of small, of no reputation, delivering his people from their greatest enemy. You've got the stories and judges of Israel sinning against God. God sending an enemy to discipline them. The people realizing their sin and turning back to God. And then God sending them a champion to deliver them. You've got stories of good kings and bad kings. Good prophets, bad prophets, good priests, bad priests. All showing us the offices that this champion of Genesis chapter 3 would fulfill. He wouldn't just be a king, he would be a prophet and a priest, and he'd be the best of all of them, the most perfect king, the most perfect prophet, the most perfect priest. Throughout the Old Testament, there's this hope building of this Genesis 3 champion through promises and historical stories, all saying the same thing. There is one coming who will reverse the curse of Genesis chapter 3. That's what the whole Old Testament is about. Now, before we go further into this, I want to draw out an application for us. I think fits us right where we are right now. Remember when I started and I said, don't notice how, how big this plan of God is. <clears throat> it's for all of mankind. It's about reversing the curse of sin on this world. It's about a champion for all people from every tribe, every nation, every tongue. And then we notice as we went through it how these progressive promises get more specific. 
Over time, God reveals more of his plan to his people so they can begin to see specifically where this champion would come from and who this champion might be. But I want you to notice something about those promises. They get more specific about the person, but they never change the scope of his work. Now that's really important. Because when, as the Old Testament history progressed, the Jewish people believed the champion was coming for them. This champion would make their nation great again. This champion would restore all the ills that was done to them in their past. And he would come for their prosperity. And some Jewish people missed this Genesis 3 champion in part because they misunderstood the scope of his work. They ignored the one who was to come for them and from them because they ignored the massiveness of the scope of his work. They narrowed their understanding of his mission to only them. And they missed the Messiah who was to come. And this is a great lesson for us. Listen, you, if you were born in this wonderful nation that we live in, in these great freedoms that have been given to us by people who have sacrificed and given their lives for these freedoms that we should always be remarkably grateful for. But listen, if you think Jesus only came to save America, you're going to miss the Messiah. His work is to help us. His work is to help Americans change and be transformed by the power of the gospel. But his work is big. It's for all nations, not just ours. And part of the reason we, are, we get disappointed in this world is because we have our hope fixed on the wrong plan. We have our hope fixed on what we think is the mission, and it's not the mission at all. So we must guard ourselves by having a view of what the true hope of the Old Testament really is. The hope of the Old Testament is a champion who would come to reverse the curse for all people from every tribe, nation, and tongue. That's why we've been given a job that says make disciples of all nations. All nations, not just one. There's a great caution in this. Especially in the midst of what we've gone through over the last two years to become awfully myopic and small in the mission of God. Now that leads us well into the second point, which is hope is the God-man. Now again, just a recap. The Genesis 3 champion would be a man of Middle Eastern descent from the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Judah, and in the line of David. So when we get to the New Testament, you're going to notice something fascinating. The New Testament reveals what the Old Testament might have disclosed. So example would be, <clears throat> where, the, where the Old Testament's not very clear, you're going to find in the New Testament it revealing it and showing to you what it meant. So an example would be, be this in, in the life of Jesus. We've seen this progressive revelation of God giving us more specifics of who this individual, this Genesis 3 champion might be. And notice how... <clears throat> the writers of the New Testament begin the New Testament with the very first verse in the New Testament. Now again, remember, remember the specifics of this Genesis 3 champion. Here's what Matthew wrote. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac was the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah. 
Do you think there's any coincidence that every specific of the Genesis 3 promise and the Genesis 3 champion would be laid out in the very first verse of the New Testament? Basically what they're telling us is the hope of the Old Testament is found in this one who has come. In Luke's genealogy, he does something a little different. Luke traces Jesus' lineage all the way back to Shem, Noah, and Adam in Luke chapter 3. Again, any coincidence? What the writers of the New Testament are revealing to us immediately is that Jesus is the hope of the Old Testament. He fulfills every specific point. And as specific as the Old Testament was in regards to this family line of the Genesis 3 champion, the New Testament begins by revealing to us this Old Testament hope is found in the person of Jesus. He fits all the specifics. He's a man of Middle Eastern descent in the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Judah, in the line of David. But there's a whole lot more to Jesus' story. What's fascinating is, if you were to take the Jewish hope and you were to wrap it up into the fact that we're going to have this champion who's going to come restore our nation, that man could really just be a man. He could be a great military warrior, a political leader, somebody who has great prowess, if you will, influence in their country. But to do the things that Genesis 3 says that this champion will do, he can't just be a man. He must be God. To fulfill the massive plan of reversing the curse of Genesis 3, he would have to be more than a human. And in Luke chapter 1, we are immediately confronted with this when we're told that Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit and he would be called the Son of God. See, he wasn't just a man. He was the God-man. Fully God and fully man. He came to do what humans, we as humans could not do. Perfectly obey God as a human. And he came to do what only God could do. Forgive us of our sins and restore us and reverse the effects of sin in this world. See, only God can reverse the curse of Genesis chapter 3. But only man can represent man before God. That's why hope is the God-man. It's the perfect solution to our ills. Now, you might read this and hear this and wonder, okay, that sounds fine, but how would an Old Testament Jew respond to this? How would they they think about this? Well, that's a great question, of which the writers in the New Testament decided to show us. When you read the Gospels, I hope what you realize is you're reading Jewish people who their scriptures were the Old Testament. They were Old Testament Jews. So how would Old Testament Jews respond to this information and what... And what they saw in Christ. Well, let's just look at two of them. Simeon was a servant in the temple of Jerusalem. He loved God and devoted himself to hoping and longing for the champion of Israel to come. He believed that God told him he wouldn't die until he saw that champion come. Look at what he said when Jesus was brought by Mary and Joseph to the temple for his dedication as a baby. Here's what Simeon said. He took him up in his arms and blessed the Lord and said, Lord, now you're letting your servant depart in peace. According to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles. Do you see what he's pointing to? All nations and for the glory of your people Israel. Anna was an 84-year-old widow 
who was constantly at the temple praying and fasting, waiting for the day when the Lord would bring about the promised champion. When she met Jesus, according to Luke chapter 2, that day in the temple when he was brought as a baby, she thanked God and immediately began to tell everyone that her champion, the champion of Israel, the champion of the Old Testament, the champion of Genesis 3, had finally come. See, the point is, the God-man of the New Testament, Jesus Christ, came to fulfill the hope of the Old Testament. And what we know about Jesus' life and his death and his resurrection tells us that he lived perfectly in our place as humans. He died on the cross to suffer the death that we deserved, and he rose again from the dead because God... God gave, because he, he did everything God told him to do, and God approved of everything he did in his life and death. He crushed the head of the serpent through all of this, and he was bruised by the devil's attempts to kill him. I hope you're aware that those bruises are his scars, his hands, and his feet. And yet, still today in heaven, he bears those same bruises. Those are bruises that are the marks of victory. Of Jesus Christ. By his life, death, and resurrection, Jesus proved to be the Genesis 3 champion who fulfilled all that God had promised. Now, here's the point hope is the God man. And those like Simeon and Anna, who understood the scope of the champion's work, knew the moment they met him that he was it. See, for most of the Jews you read about in the New Testament, maybe you're like me, I read my Bible sometimes and I say, how in the world did they miss this? How, how did this happen? Especially the Jewish leaders who were, who were masters in studying God's Old Testament laws. But here's the deal, Jesus didn't fit the profile to them. He, he wasn't born in a palace, he was born in a manger. He wasn't from Jerusalem, but from Nazareth. And they even said, does anything good come from Nazareth? He wasn't in a leading business, but he was a carpenter. He didn't look like a champion because they were looking for the wrong champion. They wanted a political leader. They wanted a military warrior. They wanted a wealthy influencer to change their nation's fortunes. They most certainly did not want a suffering servant who would give himself up as a ransom for many. But not Simeon and Anna, these two precious Old Testament saints who are preaching to us. They knew it the moment they met him because they understood what he came to do. But I, I wonder about us when I think about Simeon and Anna. I wonder about the Jewish people. I wonder about you. Is your hope firmly placed in the God-man to forgive you of your sin and reconcile you to God. And if that's all he does, that's enough. Or are you putting your hope in something temporal like, like better health, a bigger bank account, a restored nation? And if that doesn't happen, I'm losing it. Jesus Christ has come as the God-man. His mission as the God-man is to reverse the curse, not simply change our fortunes. It's a macro event, a monstrous event that has personal, individual effects. 
But what we can do is let the personal individual effects make us think too small about his mission. He came for a big mission. And he is the hope of every nation of this world. Every nation who is now gone and every nation who ever will be. He's the hope of all nations. And he's the hope of every aching heart. So we've got to get the perspective of his mission correct. Now that's a big point because as we finish up, you're going to see why. Because we're going to finish with hope fulfilled makes the heart sing. So when we realize that this is the mission that Christ came to do, and he's fulfilling that mission, and he's doing it perfectly because he is the King of Kings, Lord of Lords, and there's none of us that are going to give him any counsel, it will keep us from a whole lot of earthly frustration. Here's what I mean by that. I use this this verse a lot in counseling, especially when I'm talking to people who are terribly disappointed in this world. Proverbs 13, 12 says it this way. Hope deferred makes the heart sick. And let's just stop there for a moment. It's clear from this text that when things don't go our way, they don't go the way we hope, we get discouraged, we get depressed. But what's the contrast of hope deferred? Well, it's desire fulfilled. It's hope fulfilled. What happens when hope is fulfilled? Well, this verse tells us, but a hope fulfilled is a tree of life. It's a very funny phrase, isn't it? Tree of life, because you don't find that phrase anywhere else but in the beginning of the Bible and at the end of the Bible. At the very end of time, we're all gathered around and we're enjoying the tree of life. It's, it's in a sense, a picture of full satisfaction, full joy. We could put it this way. Hope fulfilled makes our hearts sing. It makes them satisfied. This is why, listen clearly, We must have our hope firmly fixed on the right things regarding Jesus. This is one of my fears with American Christianity. Is that we have our hopes fixed on the wrong things. And we get terribly disappointed. See, when we see and believe that Christ has come as the Genesis 3 champion to redeem us, to restore us to God, to reverse sin's curse, to give us eternal life, to transform us to be the people that God created us to be, and he did all of that, what does it cause your heart to do? It causes it to rise up and sing and rejoice. But if we put our hope in the wrong things, like Jesus simply providing for us financially, prospering us financially, making us healthy, or giving us what we want, making our kids finally obey... At some point, listen, our hearts will be sick. We must have our hearts, our hope firmly fixed on the right things regarding Jesus' mission. Now just listen to to the New Testament declaration of hope, and I want you to notice some things that it doesn't have in there. It doesn't have hope about your financial prosperity. It doesn't have hope about your health. But notice what it does have hope about. According to Matthew chapter 12, it says that Jesus is the hope of all nations. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench, until he brings justice to victory, and in his name the Gentiles will hope. This is in a book written to Jewish people for them to realize that all the world is going to hope in this one to come. We read in Colossians chapter 1 that Jesus is the only hope for glory or eternal life. 
When Paul wrote to them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. And then we read in Titus chapter 2 that one day He will return, that Jesus is our blessed hope who redeemed and purified us from our dead and sinful works, but will one day come back to rescue us. See, the point of the New Testament is there is hope for all, not just Israel. There's hope for all, not just America and Douglas County. There's hope for forgiveness of sin, for eternal life, for hope for sin's curse being reversed because the God-man is our hope. See, when you, when you put all this stuff together, you, you see that we have, of all people, We have the most reasons in this world for hope. So let's just close this out by applying a couple things to our souls, right? The first one is, we have a reason for hope because our God who promised is faithful. See, I want to just say something. According to Hebrews 10, it says something fascinating. It says that we have a reason for hope, and the reason for that hope is God. You're aware, right, that if God promised in Genesis 3 and he didn't fulfill just one line of that, we don't have reason for hope. But because every line of that has been fulfilled and will eventually one day be completed in Christ, we have all the reason in the world to hope. God has fulfilled, he has sent Jesus as our champion. He is faithful. So we don't need to shift our hope to other ideas or other thoughts. We don't need to shift our hope from the gospel. His gospel is true because he is faithful. If he were not faithful, his gospel would not be true. Friends, we have have reason for hope. You have reason for hope. God will accomplish everything his mission has said he will do. But finally, listen, we need to live in such hope in Jesus that according to 1 Peter 3, that it's obvious to others who don't have this hope. Let me ask you to do some evaluation, if you don't mind. Pull out over the last two years your your comments on social media and ask yourself this question. Does this reveal one who is living in the hope of Christ. Review your text messaging to certain friends that you like to kind of, you know, let your hair down a little bit with. Review your text messaging and ask, does this reveal one who has hope in the Christ, in the God-man? What does it say about you? Because according to 1 Peter 3, we need to be so prepared by giving, by having such hope that we were to give an account for the hope that others see in us, which indicates to me there's also a false hope that we can have that people don't even recognize. But we live in such hope in Jesus that it's obvious to other people who don't have this hope. In other words, Paul, Peter's saying, aim, get your hope as high as God has fulfilled. Has God fulfilled? Yes. Is God faithful? Yes. Then get your hope to match that. What does that do? People without hope are watching us all the time. Listen, friends, a new variant just popped out. 
I know what happened. It did with me when I read it. Oh, my word. Here we go again. Right? Of all people, pick your chin up, Dave York. Sit back and see who's on the throne of heaven. Has he fulfilled? Has he been faithful? Has he promised that all nations will be blessed? Has he promised that all curses will be reversed? Has he promised that one day all glory will be to God alone? The answer is yes. Has he sent the Genesis 3 champion? Yes. Then live in such big hope that it's obvious to others around you who don't have this type of hope. See, Jesus Christ has fulfilled the entire hope of the Old Testament. And he's our great hope. And friends, we look ahead to one day when it will all be completed with great hope. That one day he will fulfill everything he has promised to do. And in this Christmas season, listen, we of all people, of all people we have reason for it. Let's pray. Father, along with my friends here, I, I feel the, <clears throat> the pull of this earth to disappointment and discouragement and frustration. <clears throat> and I pray that you'd forgive me, forgive us, where we get, we're so myopic and small. If you never sent Jesus for us, <clears throat> you would still be worthy of all praise. And if all you did was send Jesus for us, you're worthy to be praised and it's enough for us to have hope and rest and peace in. So Father, we we say thank you for fulfilling what you promised to do. We, We are recipients of grace because you have fulfilled your promise. And we thank you today for this big picture of your big mission. And we thank you that you sent Jesus as the hope of Israel and the hope of the Old Testament and the hope of the whole world. And we're humbled, Lord, that you would even call us at all to be your children, but then also call us to be your representatives. Wow. That people would look at us and marvel at our hope and ask about it? That we can share the hope of Christ with our friends who don't know Jesus? So Father, would you, would you lift up our gaze in hope that the resurrected Christ has fulfilled what you sent him to do and that he will continue to fulfill what you sent him to do and that your church will be a part of that mission and the gates of hell will not prevail against that work. And help us to live in such hope that our neighbors, our friends, our coworkers who don't know Jesus could hear about our hope in the God-man Jesus. And we thank you in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This sermon has been proudly given in response to cherishing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Be sure to check out our YouTube channel and subscribe to watch all our sermons online. For more information about Covenant Life Fellowship, 
visit us on the web at www.clfroseburg.com.